If you were here last week, um, the notes I put in your bulletin were pretty small. It was kind of a challenge to read them. So I made the notes bigger today. So um, go ahead. If you have your bulletin, you can take those notes out. I like to have notes because the way we learn is not just by hearing but by seeing also. The more involved you can be in any learning situation, the more of your senses that are involved, uh, the better it is for you to learn to retain. And then also, that way you can take the notes home with you and you can relook at them, you can look up the verses, you can read through them again. Because it's important that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are learning and growing and then applying uh, God's word um, to our hearts. So just before we um, open God's word, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word. It's supernatural. Um, you said it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's able to go down into the very bone and marrow of our lives, and we need it. Timothy, Paul said to Timothy that it's God-breathed. It's breathed out by you. The character, the quality of your word is such that as the Spirit superintended its writing through human authors, when all was said and done in those original autographs, those original writings, that word was breathed out by you. It had the quality of being from you. And we still retain that even in our English translation, how you oversaw the copying of the scriptures over the years. And so we cherish your word. We need your word. We pray that your spirit would use your word to speak to each of our hearts this morning. And Father, we pray that in that you would be glorified your son would be lifted up, and we would live lives that say thank you to you who deserve it. We pray, Father, bless your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, so if you want to turn there in your Bible. I also have the scriptures in each little section. I have the scriptures so you can kind of follow along, and, and um, you can see them right there on your notes. So the, the book of 1 Peter... Um, he's writing to Christians who are living in difficult times. Um, if you were to look in the back of your Bible, most Bibles have maps. Sometimes they'll have uh, the journeys of Paul. He had three missionary journeys. And in that, you'll see, and in your own mind, you can probably picture modern-day Turkey. Um, and in modern-day Turkey, there were all these provinces. And Peter's going to name some of them in the first part of his book, First Peter. And these are where the people that are they're living, and Peter is writing to them. He wrote probably from Rome, and um, he's trying to encourage them because they're under heavy persecution. Uh, in fact, there's lots of trials and difficulties that they're having. Um, he mentions 15 different times throughout the book of Peter about suffering, some kind of suffering. He uses nine different Greek words. So there's all kinds of different kinds of suffering some of what they were suffering were probably uh, persecution because they were Christians. They were in the Roman Empire. Rome was in charge uh, that area. Uh, in fact, you probably remember uh, the Roman Empire was fairly large all over the Mediterranean. So if you can picture that in your mind, 
um, the, above the Mediterranean, below in modern day um, Africa, in where Israel is today, and Syria, and, and all those nations, Iraq. Um, the Roman Empire extended way out, and so, and they didn't like Christians, obviously. So Paul is writing to a mixture of, I mean, Peter is writing to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who'd become Christians. Um, we don't know, there was no churches started there except in the bottom part of Galatia where, where Paul had gone. There were no other churches that were written to directly. Um, so um, Peter wrote, and this letter would be carried around and would be shared with a lot of different people all over modern day Turkey, basically, especially the northern part of it. And so he's writing them to uh, encourage them um, in the midst of their great trials and, and tribulations and suffering and difficulty. And he's writing them to remind them that even in the midst of those kind of trials and difficulties, we can rejoice. So that's what I entitled this message. I took it right out of the passage. In this, you greatly rejoice. So we're going to look at why would Peter write this really what should make us greatly rejoice? And that's the question we want to answer this morning. What I love about the scriptures is that the writers of the scriptures, overseen by the Holy Spirit, there's logical order. A lot of times when Paul wrote, there was, a, there was an argument. There was something he was trying to show or prove. Peter, the same way. There's logic in what he wrote. So what I like to do to help you and me is to write an outline of what Peter or Paul or John or whoever the writer is, <clears throat> show you how the, there's a flow to the passage. And so that's what I tried to do this morning to help you to kind of see Peter's going to be building a case on why we can rejoice. Why is it that we can greatly rejoice, in fact, even in the midst of trials and difficulty, and he's going to basically say three things, that we can rejoice because we have a heavenly calling, we can rejoice because we have a heavenly connection, and we can rejoice because we have heavenly confidence. So let me just um, read the passage um, and um, to kind of get it in our mind, and you can kind of begin to tell the flow of the passage. To those who reside as strangers, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise, glory, honor, 
and the revelation or at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the first thing Peter wants to remind us of as believers and remind these believers who were going through many difficulties was that we have a heavenly calling. In other words, the way that we became Christians, it started with God in heaven. And so the first thing he says is that those and we also are strangers, we're, we're temporary residents of this world. Um, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, the moment that you became a Christian, the moment you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you were taken from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of his dear son. You didn't feel that happen. You didn't know that happened. Your body didn't go from one place to another, but it happened. God says you were transferred out of the kingdom of Satan and you're placed into the kingdom of God's dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at that moment, we also became strangers. Everybody is, if you've been around the church very long, you know the song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. This is not our home any longer. Paul said we're in the world, but we're no longer of the world. And so Peter is reminding them that someone called us out of the world, called us out of our identification with the world system and our identifying with Satan's kingdom. We were identified with Satan's kingdom. So now we're strangers, and he talks about these different places, uh, Pontus, Galatia. Again, if you were to look in your Bible, look at a map in the back. He's basically talking about most of Turkey. Um, that's where all these, um, all these places were at. And he says an, a very interesting thing. He says about them and about us, who are Christians, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Election is another way to say that chosen or being elect. It's obviously very misunderstood, but frequently taught in the Bible. There's lots of different places. I'm going to mention just a few of those of, of how God chooses or he elects different people or even elected angels. So you can see on the notes, we see that God chose Israel out of all the nations in the world to be his people. Israel is God's people, though they're not following him now. As a nation, they've rejected him. They've rejected the Messiah, and they've been cut off. Romans 9, 10, 11 tells us that. One day, God's going to bring them back. He's going to graft them back into the vine. He's going to save them as a nation. There's individual Jews who are Christians now that accept Christ as their Savior, but God chose the people of Israel. That's why he tells us that we're to pray for Israel. God also has elect angels. There are angels that did not fall. They did not um, follow Satan. There is angels slash demons now that believe Satan's lies and followed him. We don't go, can't go into all of that, but um, that's what the Bible teaches. But there are elect angels that did not fall. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. 
Um, I would encourage you to look at these verses later on because we're not going to be able to look at all the verses. God chose and sealed 144,000 Jewish evangelists for the tribulation. During the seven-year tribulation, um, God has already chosen 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and they're going to be saved during the tribulation. They're going to go out and be witnesses. You can, again, you can read that in Revelations chapter 7 and I think 10 also. And then God has elected or chosen people in the church age, that's now in the church age, um, for salvation, and he chose them, according to Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Now notice what he says. Notice that Peter says that God chose us according to the foreknowledge of God. It's a Greek word, prognosis, or where we get our word, doesn't that look familiar? Prognosis. You're familiar with that word? So, like with Mark, who we're praying for, there is a prognosis. There is a, for um, Mark and for anybody else, not just in medical field, but lots of fields, it could be economics, whatever, you look at the facts around whatever you're looking at, and there's a prognosis. Here is the um, probable outcome. That's what we would say. But in the Greek, it means something totally different. It's a predetermined outcome. That's what the word foreknowledge in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, um, it means um, a predicted outcome. It's God's foreknowledge is not just knowing beforehand what will happen. It's determining what will happen. That's what the word means. Choosing that person for salvation even before they exist. It was, and, and this same word was really interesting. The same word is used in Acts 2.23 about God predetermining, God foreknowing that Christ would die for our sins. It didn't, not just that he knew that it would happen, he planned it to happen. Listen to what the verse says, that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and he's talking to, this is Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, and he's talking to the Jewish people, and he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death. So just like God foreknew, he planned to have Jesus die for our sins, he also planned to save some people in the church age. He chose us out to be saved. It's pretty, that's a hard, difficult thing for us to understand. Here's a couple things that might help you. It's interesting, in contrast to that, you all heard the story about when Jesus, um, in the future, he'll be talking to some people, and they'll say, didn't we, we did all these things in your name. We healed in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things. And remember what Jesus said to them? Uh, Depart from me, I never knew you. I never came into that intimate relationship in eternity past with you. You are not one of my chosen ones. You did all these things, you say, but I never did know you at all. What God did know beforehand is that nobody would choose him. Here's the thing that helps me the most with the, with the teaching about election that God chose people to be saved is that nobody would have chosen him. That's what Romans 3 says. Um, I, I can't remember if I have this in your notes or not. But um, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands, 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So of all humanity, except for Christ, obviously, for all this fits all of humanity, no one does good. No one seeks for God. No one would choose God on their own unless God got involved in your life and chose you in eternity past. What God did know is he knew that. And listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead people can't choose God. If you're dead in your sins, that is, you have no spiritual life, you have no relationship with God, none of us did, we're not going to choose God. Dead people don't choose God. This is why Paul wrote later on in Ephesians, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Even the faith to believe God, to trust Christ, doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Not a result of works, lest anybody should boast. So the first thing he wants Peter reminds us of is that our calling is that God picked us out and saved us. The second thing is, is that we were sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart for a holy purpose. The Spirit makes us holy. He teaches us. He grants us understanding. He convicts us of sin. He produces godly character in us. He's the source of all spiritual growth. His work begins in us before we even believe. He starts. Jesus told the disciples, it's imperative that I go away, and when I go away, I'm going to send back the Spirit, and what the Spirit's going to do is he's going to convince the world or convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin because they believe not on me, righteousness because I go to my Father, and judgment because the prince of this world has already been judged. The Spirit convicts us of our sin, and then he gives us the faith to believe. So, To be sanctified means to be set apart with a holy purpose. His work begins in us before we believe and continues until we get to heaven. He completes it when we are finally glorified and in God's presence. No one ever gets saved apart from the Spirit. His work is just as important as God the Father choosing us. And if that's not enough, the next thing Peter reminds them of is that we're sprinkled by the blood of Christ. When you get saved now, this is not obviously literal. When you become a Christian, you don't feel some blood being sprinkled on you. But the idea of it, the picture of it, is in the Old Testament, when the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, he, they would first slaughter a lamb. It had to be spotless. There could be no blemishes on it. They had to take that blood and they would go from the altar where they slaughtered the lamb they would first sprinkle blood on the altar and then they would take some of that blood and they would go into the holy of holies the holy place where only one time a year and only the high priest could go in there and inside of that room through the curtain was the ark of the covenant and inside the Ark of the Covenant was the broken Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that buds, that, that sprouted, remember? Um, and on top of that was the mercy seat. And how many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. Well, that, 
that looked basically like what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. There's a description of it in the scriptures. There was those two angels with their wings like that. And right in the center of that was called the mercy seat. And the high priest would go in there and he would sprinkle that blood of that perfect lamb. He would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And if he would came out, if, that, if God accepted that sacrifice, in other words, there wasn't anything wrong with the lamb, um, there wasn't any sin in the priest's life, he sprinkled that blood, and when he came out, it showed that God had forgiven Israel for another year. You can imagine the celebration they would have. What this pictures is that we were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He, as it were, took his blood, I didn't take his little blood and take it up to heaven. It's a picture of what he did. He went up after he was raised from the dead. That proved that God accepted his sacrifice. When we're saved, we get credit for that, and he forgives us our sin. When we say, Jesus, we, I want you to be my Savior. I believe you died for me. I believe you took my place. I believe you raised from the dead to prove that you could really pay for my sin. The moment that you accept Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven. And that's what the picture of is here. So obedience is a synonym for saving faith. Being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus pictures the application of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross personally applied to our life. And I, we already talked about this, the idea of being sprinkled with blood comes from the sacrifices of the Old Testament, um, etc., the Christian being sprinkled with Christ's blood tells us that we've been forgiven and are part of the new covenant. So every time you take communion, the little cup that has the juice, it represents the blood of Christ. It's not the blood of Christ. It doesn't turn into the blood of Christ. It represents the blood of Christ. When you take that juice and you read 1 Corinthians, when you take that, it's, it's the blood of the covenant. Almost every covenant, you had to shed blood. You look back in the Old Testament, there was always the shedding of blood for a covenant. Under the New Covenant, the blood that was shed was Jesus' blood. So when you take that cup and you drink it, you're remembering what Jesus did for you, and you're saying, I'm part of this New Covenant. The New Covenant in His blood is the way the Scriptures say it. In other words, in a covenant is a relationship. This new relationship you and I have is we have with God through Christ. And so we're forgiven. The new covenant in his blood, as we remember every time we take communion, and we now have a relationship with and access to our Father in heaven. So let's just stop and think for a second. The first thing Peter wants to remind us of is that we have um, this amazing relationship with God. We have this heavenly calling. And he's reminding us, he's reminding the people that he wrote to, and everybody, every Christian who reads this, we have this heavenly calling. There's the first reason why we can rejoice greatly. He ends up saying grace and peace to you, and that's why we can have grace and peace. It's through Christ, the peace that surpasses all comprehension. And he's building his case about why we can rejoice in trial. So the second thing he says is that we have a heavenly connection. He gives you like a little mini doxology here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this doxology brings praise and worship and rejoicing that we give towards God the Father because of what he's done for us through Christ. So he says, according to his great mercy, he has been caused us to be born again. That, that idea of there being born again is another way to just say what Peter just said in those first two verses. We've been saved. Salvation starts with God, and we are recipients, recipients of his mercy through the workings of all three persons of the Trinity. Do you notice that? The Father was involved in our salvation, the Son was involved in our salvation, and the Spirit was involved in our salvation. All three persons of the Godhead guarantee our salvation. Once you get saved, that's why we believe you can't lose your salvation because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in it. So as Christians, when he says we've been born again, it has the idea of that we've been regenerated or we've been given new life. We've been given eternal life. Eternal life isn't a future possession. It's a current possession. The moment that you get saved, the moment you accept Christ, you have eternal life. Another way to say it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The moment you get saved, not only does the Holy Spirit come into you, but the Son comes into you, Christ in you. And the Father, Ephesians says, even the Father is in us. We have God's kind of life. And that's what he's saying. Because of that, we have this hope. Being born again, regenerated, given eternal life, gives us a heavenly hope, a living hope. That's what he says. We have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus is alive, and we're in him now, and we're related to him, we have a living type of hope. It's a heavenly hope. It's a living hope because of the resurrection. He's alive. We're alive in him. Therefore, our hope is alive. Our heavenly hope is trustworthy, certain, and fixed. That's a living hope. Let me just say something about hope. If you're a baseball fan or a football fan or hockey or, or whatever, or you are anticipating something and you say, I hope this is going to happen. There's no guarantee, right? I hope this will happen. I hope the 49ers win later today. I'm not going to lose any sleep if they don't, but I hope they win, right? I hope. But that doesn't guarantee they will, right? They showed us that three couple of games ago. They lost three in a row. Biblical hope, I want you to hear this definition. Biblical hope is the earnest expectation of the fulfillment of the promises of God. God will fulfill his promises. Biblical hope is I'm waiting in anticipation that God's going to do exactly what he said. That's biblical hope. It's not, oh, man, I hope God does it. Man, it'd be really nice if he does it. No, he will do it. And biblical hope is I earnestly expect God to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to fulfill all of his promises and all of his plan, but he will do it. That's biblical hope. So we first have, in this heavenly connection, we have a heavenly hope. Then we have a heavenly inheritance. We also have this heavenly inheritance. Inheritance comes through a birth relation. Remember, we've been born of God. We've been born again. He is our Father. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's what Romans 8, 
uh, verses 16 and 17 say. Listen to the verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, our human spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And unlike any earthly inheritance that we might receive, our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. The word there means not subject to corruption or decay. It's not able to pass away. It's not going to go away. The things that we might inherit from our parents or an aunt or whatever it might be, those things could go away. Those things could decay. Those things could, you know, the stock market at the bottom could fall out. You got some stocks from your aunt, and then all of a sudden they're not worth anything. But in heaven, our inheritance will never fade away. It is um, imperishable. He also, Peter says, it's undefiled. It's not able to spoil. It's not, it's not affected or stained by evil. He says it's unfading. The idea of the word there means it's enduring. It's unimpaired by time. It never depreciates or diminishes. Most everything we ever have depreciates in value. But our inheritance in heaven does not depreciate in value. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about what that inheritance is in just a moment. It's unfading, and it can't be lost, Peter says. And guess what? Your name's on it. That's what he says. Your name is on it. It's guaranteed. It's reserved in heaven for you. What does this inheritance consist of? It consists of ultimate peace and joy. It consists of a redeemed and resurrected body. It consists of an uninhibited, intimate relationship with God. An amazing life in heaven, unlike anything we have ever experienced. And that's just the beginning. That's not even all of it. The writer of Hebrews said that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. It means he's able to save us fully and completely for all of eternity. So our connection is we have a heavenly hope, we have a heavenly inheritance, and then we have heavenly protection. We are protected or guarded by the power of God. The idea here is that all Christians are protected by God so that each one will take, make it to heaven and receive their inheritance. His sovereign power, his providential guarantee, providence is how he works in history, how he works in the world, how he works through all the different kinds of things that happen in our world today and in our lives. That's the providence of God. He's making sure that everything that he promises is going to happen, and he's going to make sure that we're going to make it. The way that uh, Paul said uh, in uh, Philippians was that the work that he's begun in us, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete it. Not maybe he'll complete it. We hope he'll complete it. No, he will complete it. So we have this heavenly protection so that God will complete what he said he's going to do for us. And it's an inheritance that cannot be taken away or lost. We'll experience our full salvation when we see him face to face. We are saved to the uttermost. And then he says the next little phrase in the next verse, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. This is why we can rejoice for all that God has done for us. When we really understand what God has done, the links that he's gone to save us, the links that he's gone 
to prepare a place for us. The lengths that he's gone to keep us until we get there. We can rejoice no matter what our circumstances are. Not too long ago, 2009, um, I got to practice this. My first wife, her name was Betty. Um, I had just preached out of 1 Peter, not this passage, but a different passage. In fact, I'll read you that passage that, um, that I preached on. Uh, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him <clears throat> because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers uh, throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I preached that passage. I went home that afternoon. My first wife, her name was Betty. She wasn't feeling well. Uh, in the middle of that afternoon, she had a stroke. Um, we rushed her to the hospital. Six days later, she was in heaven. And I got to practice what God's word says. And in the midst of all that, I had peace. Did I grieve? Certainly. Um, did I miss her? Of course. But just knowing God's word isn't good enough. You have to practice it. You have to count it to be true. And so that's what Peter is reminding them because the next things he's going to talk about is the confidence that we can have. Because of the things he just said that are true, now he's going to talk about the confidence that we can have. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you not, do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." So the first thing he's going to remind us of is the confidence that we can have in trials. Obviously, nobody likes trials. None of us do. They're usually very painful, and they last way longer than we think they should. We've all probably questioned God at some point, saying something like, is this really necessary, Father? Really? This is really necessary? You see the word, if necessary, up back in the verses? It really should be translated since necessary. It's what the Greek calls a first-class condition. So it'd be like if I said to you, hey, uh, Jim, Jim, since you're going to the store, if you're going to the store, uh, could you pick up this for me? Well, Jim knows that if, if I'm saying to him, if you're going to the store, which he is, he knows it since he's going to the store, and that's the idea here. It's not if necessary, trials are necessary. The way James said it was, when you encounter various trials, not if, we will encounter them. There will be various trials. We will have them. And Peter's reminding them that trials are necessary. They're usually painful. They last a lot longer than we wish they would, but they are necessary. 
That's how Peter, when he wrote this, that's how the readers of Peter's letter and how we should understand it. They are necessary. There's all kinds of different trials. Peter says, and James says the same thing, they're various trials. It means many colored trials. When they translated the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, they translated into the Greek language. They called that the Septuagint. Okay? And when they translated the story about Joseph's coat of many colors, they used this word. The idea here of various trials is many colored trials, many different kinds of trials, difference in length, uh, difference in intensity. There are all kinds of various colored kinds of trials. And that's what Peter is saying. It's what James said. There's different types. There's different lengths. But they're only for a specific amount of time. But only God is the one who determines how long that's going to be. We're, they're all designed by God to refine and strengthen our faith. That's the purpose of trials. You can read James chapter 1. You can read Romans chapter 5. You can see that it's to build character in us. Trials are meant to build character, Christ-like character in us. And when you understand the reason for trials, in them you can still greatly rejoice because you know they have first passed through your heavenly Father's hands. Nothing comes upon you, no difficulty, no trial comes upon you unless it's first come through God's hand. Even Job, God gave permission to Satan to tempt Job because he said if you take away all of his stuff God he won't serve you any longer well Job proved differently it doesn't matter what kind of trial or difficulty it came through your heavenly father's hands first it as it were it has his approval because he wants to use those things in all of our lives to show that our faith is real and genuine so we have confidence in trials the second thing James says, we have confidence in Christ's return. Another purpose for trials is to prepare us and make us look forward to the return of Christ. As trials refine our faith, uh, as fire refines gold, we can anticipate our genuine, proven, refined faith result in praise, glory, and honor be given to Jesus at his return. And as our faith is being refined through trials, we anticipate his coming. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Just think how much more we're going to love him when we see him face to face. I try to tell the Lord, and I try to tell our Father, that I love him a lot. I want to remind myself how important that is because of how much God loves me. Sometimes I qualify and say, Lord, I love you, but I don't love you enough. Father, I love you, but I don't love you enough. I could love you more, and I want to love you more. Help me to love you more. But thinking about who Christ is and what he's done, knowing that the trials that we have are for our good and for our benefit, we can rejoice and we can say, you know what, Lord, I love you because I know you have my best interest in mind. And then the third confidence we have that Peter reminds us of is a confidence in the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The last thing we see in this passage is our confidence in the gospel. Peter says, though you do not see him now, 
you believe in him. That's the gospel. You've trusted in Christ. You believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, because we can't save ourselves. We're all sinners. We need salvation. We need someone outside of ourselves to save us. If I'm in the Truckee River and I'm drowning, um, I need somebody outside of the problem, right? I need somebody on the shore to throw me something and pull me back in. Jesus was outside of the problem because he was not a sinner. He was the perfect lamb, that lamb that was sacrificed and then the high priest took it into the Holy of Holies. That's a picture of who Christ is, the perfect lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said the first time he saw Jesus? There goes the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't cover it like the lambs of the Old Testament. He takes it away. I need somebody outside of my problem that I'm a sinner to save me. That's what Jesus did. He's outside of the problem. He's the one who could die for my sins. That's the gospel. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and exalt with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Inexpressible joy is joy beyond words. It's impossible to describe. Joy that defi defies all human explanation and understanding. We have confidence in the gospel brings inexpressible joy and glory. I have confidence that God is the one who can save me. It's not dependent on myself. It's not dependent on what I do, that I make it to church every week, or I give in the offering, or I serve. Those things are good, and we should do those things, but that's not what saves me. God saves me. Jesus saves me. He was outside of my problem. He was not a sinner. So he could, he could die and pay for my sin. That's what happened. He took my place. He took your place. So the outcome of our faith, our belief in the gospel, is the salvation of our souls. Now, I put two verses down there for us to kind of, how do you put this into practice? How do you put these truths about our salvation, about um, our, our heavenly confidence that we have, about what we have in heaven waiting for us, how should that impact us? How should that affect our lives? I put two, down two verses. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. This is my prayer for you and my prayer for me also. And it should be and could be your prayer for yourself. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that is, you would have full understanding, so that you will know, you'll grab a hold of it, and you'll believe it, you will know what is the hope of his calling. Remember we talked about our heavenly calling? We need to understand that. We need to apply that. We need to believe that so that we'll know the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We are rich in Christ. So that should be our prayer, that I fully understand what Peter just said in those first five verses, and that I grab a hold of it, and I believe it, and I trust in it, and it, it impacts the way that I live my life. In fact, that's the next thing that Paul said later on in Ephesians. He said, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The word walk there means 
to order your manner of life. It means taking step by step by step by step. It's a Greek word called parapateo. It means one step after another. So how do I order my manner of life? Pardon me? Um, how do I order my manner of life? How do I walk? He said, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy here means to weigh the same. It pictures a scale. Now, we don't weigh things like this any longer, but it used to be that you'd have a five-pound weight, you'd put it on this side so the scale's like this. So if you wanted to buy five pounds of potatoes, right, you'd put potatoes on there until what happened? Until the scale leveled out, right? So then they would weigh the same, correct? That right? Everybody got that, right? We don't, know those, we don't have those kind of scales anymore. Scales of justice are supposed to be that way, but it doesn't work that way, really. Um, so um, what he's saying here is, I want you to walk worthy, weigh the same as your calling. What you've been called to, all that Peter just said in those first five verses, all that we have in Christ, here's the weight of all that, right? Now walk, have your everyday life, reflect what's here and have this weight of what you do in your life balance out. That's what walking worthy is. Here's my calling. I'm going to walk worthy of my calling. It has to weigh the same as this over here. A friend of mine used to say, um, sometimes Christians know tons, but they live ounces. That will never move the scale, let me tell you. So really, what our prayer and our desire should be that God help what I do in my life, how I live my life. Start bringing the scale up for this great weight of glory that we have in Christ. Help me to live in such a way that it starts to balance the scale. How do you do that? You trust God in difficult circumstances. You thank God for what he's done for you. You serve God out of love and appreciation for him. All those kinds of things start to bring the scale back this way. Now, we're never going to be able to do everything to bring the balance because this is a huge weight of what Jesus has done for us. But we can start to move the scale, and it doesn't mean you're more saved. Don't get me wrong. Not saying, or that doesn't keep you saved. You're saved no matter how much this is. But we need to reflect what God has done for us. So just picture your life that as I start to live, to reflect what God has done for me, it starts to move the scale, and that honors God. You're not paying him back, don't get me wrong. You're not keeping your salvation because you can't keep it. Only God can keep it for you. You're not doing anything except reflecting what God has done in your life. Does that make sense? In America, this means yes. That means no. This means I have no idea what you're saying. Right, so. Well, let's pray. Father, wow, what a salvation we have. It's overwhelming that you would do through your son what you've done for us. That you paid for the awfulness of our sin. It was an affront to you because there is no sin in you. You can't even be around sin. That's why when you save us, you sanctify us. And then you give us a new resurrected body. You get rid of our sin body 
nature or sin bent towards sin even. And when we stand before you, we stand before you, we're in Christ, we're fully saved, we're fully sanctified, and we're reflecting your glory. And you started all this process in eternity past, even before we were born. Even before you created anything, before the foundations of the world, you started loving us. That is an amazing thing. And then you gave us your spirit to help us to bring balance into our life, to empower us to do the things that you call us to do. Thank you for all of your provisions. Again, Father, we lift up Mark and Jenny. We pray for the doctors to give them wisdom. We pray, Father, um, for the nurses as they're giving uh, Mark excellent care. We pray for Jim and Janie. Pray for Morgan and Hayden. Pray for the rest of the family, Father. We pray you'd encourage them. We pray, Father, they would, they would sense your presence in their lives and in this situation. We pray you give them peace that surpasses all comprehension that will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. We pray all this, Father, for your glory and honor, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.